This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I don't know whether there really is an old Chinese proverb, if that's the right word for it, that expresses the sentiment, may you live in interesting times, but I think most everyone listening to this show will agree that the times we're living in are just a little bit too damned interesting, at least on the political front. We, too, are astonished by the fact that President Donald Trump has fired a person who, as much as anyone else in the federal government, helped him win the election. We are referring, of course, to FBI Director James Comey who on October 28th of last year, just prior to the November 8th election, announced to the public that he was reopening the investigation of Hillary Clinton. Speaking last week at the Women for Women International event in New York City, Hillary Clinton stated that if the election were on October 27th, I'd be your president. We're going to take some time a little bit later in this segment to uh, read from whowhatwhere.com's analysis, uh, which took place prior to the Comey firing, but is highly relevant. People are asking, how could it be that Trump is firing Comey for his handling of the Clinton email situation? The timing does seem a little bit odd, being that Comey was testifying before Congress last week and announcing in a secretive fashion that, no, there is an investigation going on into the contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. Can't tell you too much about it, but it is going forward. It does seem a little bit odd that President Trump has all of a sudden decided that Comey cannot run the FBI. And as has been typical, there are mixed messages coming from the White House. It was hinted at one point that, well, this has everything to do with the handling of the Clinton case. And then that was subsequently denied. It should be noted that candidate Trump last fall and even last summer had nothing but good things to say about Mr. Comey, although he did attack him last July for not filing charges against Clinton. It should be noted that on October 28th of 2016, the day that Comey announced the FBI was investigating new Clinton emails, Donald Trump said at a rally in Manchester, New Hampshire, The FBI, after discovering new emails, is reopening their investigation into Hillary Clinton. I have great respect for the FBI for writing this wrong. Anyway, we'll have more to say about that in a few minutes. One story we absolutely do need to make mention of, um, which I don't believe we have till this point, is the fact that they finally got around to firing Bill O'Reilly over at Fox. No, he wasn't fired because he was an ignoramus that has no idea what he's talking about. No, he was not fired because he's a pompous ass. No, he wasn't fired because he keeps writing books of, you know, supposedly about history that are more in the line of historical fiction. But he was finally fired for the allegation that uh, Fox has paid out $13 million to no less than five women who have claimed that the TV host either sexually harassed them or verbally abused them. Personally, we are glad to say that whatever it finally took, Bill O'Reilly is not currently pontificating before the American public to rather large audience. It is bad enough that year after year he's been just a flaming jerk, but just the fact that he gets it wrong so consistently is what's always gotten under our skin. Anyway, Bill O'Reilly, bye-bye now. Although we have 
sadly, a fair amount of confidence that somehow he'll be back. Anyway, we like to do a good news item at least some point in the program, and Science and Technology often provides a number of those. And uh, for this week's show, we're going to cite this little piece of good news. According to technologyreview.com, researchers at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee have built an energy-efficient clothes dryer that blasts laundry with high-frequency sound waves. The machine uses ultrasound to vibrate water droplets out of the fabric, forming a fine mist that's siphoned out like a regular dryer. This ultrasonic dryer can dry a medium-sized load in 20 minutes compared to 50 minutes for a conventional machine. It also uses 70% less energy than conventional dryers. This is exciting. Let's hope this works out. Of course, I would like to point out that if you live here in California, and we believe that most of you do, dear listener, you do have another energy-saving option available to you, the solar clothes dryer. You will discover that if you take moist clothing out of the washer and hang it up in your backyard, as a general rule, it'll be dry in no time and smell pretty good. If you're not doing this already, please think about it. Since we're going to kind of go in no particular order in today's program, we're going to jump to an obituary. It's our policy to cite the passing of various figures that we think are worthy of note. And one such person we will comment upon today is author Robert Persig. Back in 1968, Persig sent a sample of his dense meandering first novel titled Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance to 122 publishers. One, William Morrow, expressed any interest. Persig's editor warned him that the brilliant book would likely flop. Luckily, he was wrong. Zen, which was based on a motorcycle trip Persig took with his 12-year-old son Chris, sold 50,000 copies in three months and more than 5 million in the years since. The book dove into examinations of Eastern and Western philosophy, the relationship between man and machine, and the author's own battle with schizophrenia. It's been a long, long time since I read that book, but I, I, I very much enjoyed it uh, several decades ago, and it's probably worth a go again. And if you've never read it, dear listener, I hope you'll consider um, giving it a tumble. For an anecdote on today's program, we'll, we'll cite a little item that I was only partially aware of. But apparently Richard Gere paid a pretty steep price for his allegiance to Tibetan Buddhism. Back in 1993, the actor was presenting an Oscar at the Academy Awards when he launched into a passionate protest against China's occupation of Tibet. The speech infuriated the show's producer, who swore that Gere would never again appear at the Academy Awards again. And evidently he has not. But somewhat surprisingly, it evidently did damage his career a bit. Gere has said there are definitely movies that I can't be in because the Chinese will say not with him. China is now the world's second biggest box office market and carries huge weight in Hollywood. It is our opinion that the independent nation that should be known as Tibet got invaded by the People's Republic of China in 1948 and annexed as a Chinese province, which it has been ever since. I have seen reports that China has poured a fair amount of money into Tibet and made some improvements, but we think the issue of whether Tibetans would be a part of China should have been and still should be left up to Tibetans. 
At this point, I think I'd like to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the week magazine, it was a good week last week for being grounded. We might label it presidential quips, and to give some credit where credit is due. But according to this story, after President Trump learned while speaking to crew members aboard the International Space Station that they turned their own urine into drinking water, astronaut Peggy Whitson told the president, it's really not as bad as it sounds. Trump replied, better you than me. Which, in fairness, we do have to give him credit. It was, conversely, a bad week last week for public outreach with the news that a federal hotline asking citizens to report crimes committed by, quote, criminal aliens, unquote, was overwhelmed with prank calls about UFO sightings, abductions by extraterrestrials, and visits by Bigfoot. And it was an ugly week, surely an ugly week, a couple of weeks back for self-reliance after a British survey found that one in five people admit they don't know how to change a light bulb or boil an egg. Researchers said there is a widening skills gap in society. And there's this from the politically correct file. A group of Columbia University students draped a Ku Klux Klan hood over a statue of Thomas Jefferson and labeled the Founding Father the epitome of white supremacy. Protesters from the group Mobilized African Diaspora said the statue of the slave-holding Founding Father validates rape, sexual violence, and racism and showed Columbia's quote-unquote hypocrisy in recruiting black students as quote, mere tokens of the university, unquote. But lest you think that uh, knuckleheadedness uh, is something that the, the, the left has a monopoly on of late, we have this. The mayor of San Antonio has blamed poverty on, quote, broken people, unquote, who are not in a relationship with their creator. Mayor Ivy Taylor, a Democrat and born-again Christian, told a meeting of the Christian coalition that poor, that poor people's lack of religion prevented them from being productive members of society. Taylor said criticism of her comments was politically motivated. All right, we're going to go for our stat of the day with this item. According to Bloomberg.com, amid nationwide food shortages and political chaos, the average Venezuelan adult has lost 19 pounds in the last year. And while we've been highly skeptical of the so-called opioid crisis, epidemic, whatever you want to call it, taking place in America, because... As a practicing physician, it's been my observation that opiates on the balance do far more good, far more good than harm in society. But writing in nationalreview.com, some dude named David French has said that as the opioid crisis takes lives on a historic scale, it's time to kill a bad idea. Just say no to legalizing hard drugs. And there you have it. A lot of countries have decided that liberalized policies towards all drugs was making a heck of a lot more sense than this so-called war on drugs. 
We reported on this show that of the 27 million illegal drug abusers in the United States, 22 million of those are pot smokers. The DEA and other people deeply involved in this so-called war on drugs are facing some cutbacks if we make pot legal. And, of course, then we have to (laughs) spend all of our money on fighting other quote-unquote hard drugs. And when I say all this, I don't mean to downplay the terrible effect that drug abuse has on society. But in saying that, I would hasten to emphasize that hands down the number one drug problem we have in America, and I think the same might be said for most advanced nations, is alcohol. It so happens we performed a social experiment in this nation with banning the use of alcohol back in 1920. That didn't pan out so well. I don't know whether the legalization of all drugs, perhaps in milder forms, would do more good than harm. I think it would. I am about to embark on a trip to Portugal, which I understand made most illegal drugs legal some years back, so I hope I'll be able to report firsthand on how that experimenting is proceeding in at least one European nation. And speaking of alcohol, we have this from the stupidity file. A South Dakota man last week was arrested after he pushed past police and firefighters and ran into his burning home to rescue his beer. While emergency workers were helping people, police said Michael Castile, age 56, barged his way into the apartment building and emerged clutching two cans of Bud Ice Premium. Officers quickly cuffed him and charged him with obstruction. Mr. Miller would like to add they should have charged him with bad taste in his beer selection. Speaking of the incident, a police spokesman said Castile had demonstrated poor judgment. And in another story related to beverages and bad news, the Washington Post has reported that sugar-free versions of soda may increase people's risks of developing a stroke or dementia. Scientists at Boston University, as reported in the Post, studied more than 4,000 people over a 10-year period. They found that those who consumed at least one artificially sweetened drink per day were almost three times more likely to have a stroke or be diagnosed with dementia than those who have one or fewer a week. To the researchers' surprise, a parallel study of sugary drinks did not find a similar association. This is one I think they should, should check out again. As we've reported on this program, and you've no doubt read or heard about elsewhere, dear listener, an awful lot of studies that show one certain result, um, when attempts are made to replicate them, are f- found that they cannot reproduce those initial results. I'm kind of hoping that'll prove to be the case with this one, because the idea that uh, drinking a Diet Coke is increasing your chances of dementia is... Um, Well, that's a little unsettling. Not that I drink the stuff, but I know a lot of you do. We suggested a year or two ago that in the wake of all these problems that we're having with bees, which we suspect are related to the use of neonicotinoids, even though the chemical companies are doing their best to muddy the waters on it, um, getting bees is is, is a good thing, and, and I'm happy to report that I did so a few weeks back. They're in my backyard, and they seem pretty happy. I hope they make it. The last hive I had, unfortunately, succumbed to, well, whatever mysterious ailment seems to be afflicting 
beehives all across the country with what's called colony collapse disorder. When uh, my bees finally, you know, gave up the ghost and I took apart the hive, I found that it had been infested with wax moths. My understanding is that when the hive is pretty much on the way out, there aren't enough bees left to fight off the moths, which like to get inside the hive and, from what I could see, spin uh, spin wool around themselves to protect them from attacks by the bees and, and chew away on the wax found in the beehive. Well, it turns out that some good may come of these annoying wax worms. Researchers in Spain, in particular a Federica Bertaccini, who is a uh, described as a developmental biologist and amateur beekeeper, uh, noticed that after her beehives were infested with these uh, beeswax-loving caterpillars, she put some grubs in a plastic bag and observed that they immediately ate their way out. Now, it's been noted that plastic and wax do have some similar chemical structures, and Bertaccini posited that in evolving to digest wax, waxworms may also have gained the ability to break down polyethylene, the world's most common plastic. She took her theory to biochemists at the University of Cambridge, who then found that 100 waxworms could gulp down 92 milligrams of polyethylene in about 12 hours, and thus degrade plastic bags much faster than any other known method. The study co-author, Paolo Bombelli, said that if a single enzyme is responsible for this chemical process, its reproduction on a large scale might allow us to use biotechnological methods to break down plastic. Well, yeah, why don't we just use the worms? All right, in the time that we have left, I think I'm going to read a bit from the, from the piece in whowhatwhy.org. Under the headline exclusive, the article was titled How Trump Backers Weaponized Anthony Weiner to Defeat Clinton. The three authors are Matthew Harvey, Jonathan Larson, and Russ Baker. We highly suggest, dear listener, that you check this piece out on your own, it is a long one, an 8,000-word narrative, which we will not, certainly not have time to read all of today, but, um, but it is worth putting the time in. We would summarize the article, as the article does itself, by noting that based on a month-long investigation, evidence was laid out for the first time that a deliberate plot was behind the exposure of Hillary Clinton's emails on Anthony Weiner's computer. It's an act that may have put Donald Trump in the White House. The article starts by noting that when the FBI decided not to pursue a criminal case against Hillary Clinton for her use of a private email server, Donald Trump's path to the White House got narrowed considerably. Until, says the article, a group of his staunchest supporters found a way to get the case back in the spotlight at the most opportune time. After scrutinizing the circumstances that led up to the FBI's fateful decision to announced through James Comey that the FBI was going to reopen this Clinton email probe. Well, the authors determined that, uh, well, fate in this case got a helping hand from Trump supporters, surrogates, and their media allies. They concluded, on the basis of investigation, that there's a reasonable likelihood that Trump himself or someone high up in his campaign received inside information, possibly from sources in the Bureau. There was an operation to bait Anthony Weiner, the controversial husband of Clinton's top aide, Huma Abedin. And thirdly, there was a successful effort, perhaps from within the FBI, that forced Director Comey to utilize the Weiner allegations as a basis to reopen 
the email investigation of Hillary Clinton. That, of course, gave swing voters two reasons not to vote for Clinton. Number one, a renewed doubt about her behavior as regards to security concerns. And number two, an implied connection to Anthony Weiner and his repugnant behavior. According to Russ Baker and his co-authors, James Comey and the FBI were reacting to events. But they posed the question of who were the people who set those events in motion and asked what were their motives and were these actors doing so for justice and truth or to create a partisan advantage. It should be noted that very early on, Donald Trump was publicly signaling that a way to harm Clinton was through Anthony Weiner. On August 3rd, 2015, Donald Trump tweeted, It came out that Huma Abedin knows all about Hillary's private illegal mails. Huma's PR husband, Anthony Weiner, will tell the world. Two months ago, on March 22nd, now President Trump bragged in Time magazine that he had predicted the importance of Anthony Weiner long before the fact. He told the magazine, Human Abedin and Anthony Weiner, you know what I tweeted about that whole deal? And I turned out that he had it, all of Hillary's email on this thing. Noted Baker, of course, Trump greatly distorted the facts, but that mattered little once the dust had settled. Just a couple weeks ago, James Comey told the Senate Judiciary Committee that it makes me mildly nauseous to think that we had an impact on the election. Now, in case you've forgotten, Anthony Weiner got himself into a bit of hot water by, you know, texting provocative pictures of himself. Supposedly, Congressman Weiner cleaned up his act, but apparently somewhere along the way had a lapse. It seems his lapse was assisted. The piece notes that Sidney Leathers, who was the second of Weiner's two sexting partners and a porn actress, has presented herself as an expert in the art of entrapping politicians. In Weiner's latest mishap, it was alleged that an unnamed 15-year-old from North Carolina, who was reportedly writing a book about Weiner, sexted with him. Accusations about that in the Daily Mail triggered a redux of Weinergate. This is a rather complicated story. It's hard to unravel here. There are other people involved here. Cassandra Fairbanks, a writer for the Kremlin-based Sputnik News, who reportedly converted to being a Trump supporter after activism in Black Lives Matter, and the Bernie Sanders campaign, no doubt. She's also rumored to have close ties to the FBI. Eric Prince is mixed up in this, the founder of the mercenary firm Blackwater. He's a big Trump supporter. He's also, by the way, the brother of Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Prince went public as part of a calculated propaganda campaign in a November 4th Breitbart News interview, making a host of wild and demonstrably false allegations connection with the Weiner-Clinton revelations. Now, to roll backwards on this, it turns out that uh, when Anthony Weiner got involved in his latest little sexting escapade, the Daily Mail broke the story. False claims were quickly spread that there was a treasure trove of as-yet-unseen Clinton emails waiting to be investigated on Anthony Weiner's laptop. And apparently this, this story really got some traction that these non-existent emails contained salacious and even criminal material. These rumors were floated on Breitbart, and stoked up Trump's base. Russ Baker notes that we now know there never was a there there, but through leaks, false stories, and outrageous spin by a host of Trump proxies, it turned out to be enough to help turn the election. The article talks about how Anthony Weiner, (laughs) who really needs to control himself, apparently got catfished, meaning duped by someone purporting to be 
someone whom they are not. Wiener was sent flirtatious emails, which, like a dope, he responded to. Now, in September, the Daily Mail's Alana Goodman broke the story that Wiener had engaged in some underage sexting. This eventually led to Comey reopening an investigation into the Clinton emails. The lengthy feature story purports to chronicle a cyber relationship between Wiener and an anonymous 15-year-old in North Carolina. Critics have taken a look at some of these communications between this alleged teenager and uh, Wiener and have concluded that, well, the teen may not exist or may be a surrogate for others. Then in October, FBI agents seized Wiener's laptop, and luckily for Donald Trump, no sooner did the Access Hollywood audio tape surface where he was talking about grabbing women he barely knows, quote, by the pussy, unquote, adding, they let you get away with it if you're famous. Well, the firestorm over that uh, was mitigated uh, within hours by the leak of the first emails from John Podesta, likely courtesy of Russia, says whowhatwhy.org, by way of WikiLeaks. It should be noted that just a few days before Comey made that announcement, a lot of Trump surrogates were talking about an October surprise. Donald Trump's daughter-in-law said on October 24th, there's still a few days left in October. We've got some stuff up our sleeve. The next day, Rudy Giuliani appeared on Fox and Friends bearing a similar message. Giuliani said, you'll see, we've got a couple of surprises left, and I think it will be enormously effective. It's interesting to note that it took a couple of weeks for uh, Comey to even hear about the seizure of Anthony Weiner's laptop. Explanations for the purported delay in notifying of this, of this startling discovery include the New York office of the FBI being distracted by other projects and its computers repeatedly crashing. The practical effect was to delay the damaging announcement by Comey to much closer to the election when Clinton forces had much less time to respond. Anyway, that's about all the time we have to talk about this particular piece. We suggest you read it in its entirety. There is some compelling evidence that people in the FBI were leaking things to Trump, who then was putting pressure back on the FBI, which evidently led them to make this announcement last October about the Hillary Clinton emails, which turned out to be much ado about nothing. And isn't it odd that it's taken Donald Trump up till now to finally show his displeasure with James Comey and fire him? Think this has something to do with the whole Russia story? Well, yeah, we do too. That about does it for this segment, which was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax.